the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. World religions try to attack the problem of evil behavior by a system of rules and regulations that will try to curtail or manage bad behavior. Christianity is different from all other world religions in that it doesn't try to modify behavior through an external process, but what Christianity teaches is that it alters behavior through an internal transformation. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. World religions will place rules on you and tell you that those rules dictate whether or not you'll get to heaven. Pastor Gary teaches you today that this is how Christianity is different. Jesus makes it clear that there's no other way to heaven but through Him. This means that the path to heaven isn't through works, but is instead through simply acknowledging Christ and accepting Him into your heart. Then as you get to know Him, you'll begin to find the desire to be like Him. That desire will lead you to serve and help others. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So last week, we, uh, at the conclusion of chapter 7, uh, tried to do the best we could to identify who Melchizedek really is, because again, um, the writer of Hebrews is establishing uh, the fact for the for the benefit of Jewish believers in Jesus. This this book is written to the Hebrews, to Jews who are believers in Jesus, uh, that Jesus is superior than, greater than, uh, um, better than a variety of things. And one of the things that it's important to establish, particularly for Jews, uh, and some of you will relate to this even today, is the fact that Jesus is better than, greater than, superior to any priest and to the whole priesthood. And again, if you're Jewish and everything you've ever known in life is that the way you get to God is through a priest... And everything you've ever known in life is that the way you get your sins forgiven is through the sacrifice with the assistance of a priest. And then new information comes along that says, hey, Jesus died on a cross 
and he's replaced the priestly order, and his sacrifice is good once and for all. You don't need any more animal sacrifices. I mean, that is so radical for them that the writer of Hebrews is establishing here, don't, don't go back and abandon your faith. Don't shrink back and go back to the legalistic ways. Don't, don't revert to your Jewish traditions because Jesus is better than anything and everything. And so hold fast to your faith and run the race and, and know that um, you're serving the Lord who is better than anything and everything. And so this is radical for them. And in chapters 5 through 9, five chapters out of 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. So more than one third of the book of Hebrews is devoted to the whole idea of the priesthood and how Jesus is better than uh, any priest and how he's replaced the, the priesthood. And, and so, but one of the pushbacks that the Jewish believers are, are, are going to naturally give is all we've ever known is we get to God through a priest. All we've ever known is sacrifices with the assistance of a priest. And our priests have to be in the line of Levi. They have to be uh, uh, of the tribe of Levi. And you're telling us that Jesus has replaced all this priesthood thing. And Jesus isn't even of the tribe of Levi. He doesn't even have the right genes. That was a little joke. Come on, Wednesday night people. That he's of the tribe of Judah. He's not even of the tribe of Levi. And so the writer of Hebrews is establishing this fact that, listen, he's, he, and, and this is where we basically left off. These were the summary points from last week. That, that, that the priesthood of Jesus precedes and transcends any earthly priestly system. And that Jesus existed before the priesthood was ever established among men. And he is greater than any priest among men. And, it, and as part of his argument, the writer of Hebrews is, refer, refers back to Melchizedek. We talked extensively about him last week. Melchizedek first appears in Genesis 14, and then not for another thousand years until Psalm 110, when David writes about him, and then not for another thousand years until the writer of Hebrews. And um, there's a lot of debate about who Melchizedek really is. I tried to do the best I could to make the argument that I believe that Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament called a Christophany. Um, and there's a lot of great debate about it. But when you put all the factors together, I think that Melchizedek was, in fact, Jesus. That his name, Melchizedek, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, the king of peace. He has no uh, genealogy, no genealogical record. Um, and he's also the king of righteousness. So you put all this together, he offers bread and wine to Abraham when he meets him in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham pays tithes to him. Anyway, you put all this together, I think the best argument is that Melchizedek really is Jesus, but other great uh, people who of faith will, will disagree and think that Melchizedek was just a type of Christ. Either way, uh, the main point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that uh, Jesus transcends the priesthood just like Melchizedek predated the priesthood. Okay, Melchizedek appears to Abraham. Levi doesn't come until the great-grandson of Abraham. So the whole priestly uh, system, um, the writer of Hebrews is addressing here as something now that you no longer have to go through in order to get to God because Jesus died on a cross and he himself is the only one we have to go through to get to God. And so he's going to build on this, because again, it's chapters 5 through 9, this whole concept. So let's look now at chapter 8. He says, and this is kind of a summary of all that I just said, the point of what we are saying is this, 
colon, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. All right, so let's just pause there for a moment and back up here and look at this section. The first thing I want to point out to you is that he mentions in verse 1 that we do have such a high priest, meaning Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Listen, no priest, no earthly priest doing earthly duty, talking about the Jewish priestly system, okay, ever sat down. There were no seats in the tabernacle of the Lord. There were no seats in the temple of the Lord because the priest's duty was never done. Only Jesus, our high priest, was able to sit down at the right hand of the majesty. In other words, when Jesus ascended from the dead, uh, uh, arose from the dead, and then ascended back into heaven, the Bible says he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the reason that he is seated is because his work is complete that Jesus' work is finished, and there's nothing else to do to improve upon this. So therefore, he sat down. So this would have been very uh, unusual for regular priests. And so again, the writer of Hebrews is establishing this fact that we have a priest, we have a high priest. Don't worry, for those of you who are all hung up about, what about the priestly system and the high priest who would go before? We have a high priest, it's okay, but that high priest is Jesus. And that high priest has replaced every other priest high or low, that Jesus now is sufficient to having died for our sins, paid the price for all of us. We go through Jesus and no other man. So we do have a high priest, but his name is Jesus now. And he sat down and he serves in the sanctuary. Listen to verse two, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by not by man. Now, there are two words used in the Bible to describe the sanctuary of God. There's the tabernacle of God, and there's the temple of God. The tabernacle of God is first given to uh, the instructions given to Moses by God in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. It was the first time there was any sanctuary built to the Lord, but it was a temporary sanctuary. Uh, It was a mobile sanctuary. It was something they would set up through the wilderness wanderings, through the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, as a place where they could worship the Lord. The high priest would go into the inner uh, sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And all of the uh, building specification for this tabernacle, which was basically a glorified tent, it's sometimes called the Tent of Meeting, all of the specifications, all the details were given by God to Moses and built accordingly. But the tabernacle was eventually replaced with the temple. Now, the Bible says that David, King David, had in his heart to build a permanent sanctuary to the Lord. But God told David, 
I see your heart and I know you have good intentions, but your hands have shed blood. He was a warrior. And because your hands have shed blood, you shall not build for me a temple, but your son shall. And so Solomon would build the temple of God and the specifications were given to David and David handed them the drawings to Solomon and Solomon then built the temple of God and the temple of God stood in Jerusalem from the days of Solomon, roughly 900 BC until 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. Now there was a refurbishing uh, project in the, in, uh, near the end of that uh, time period when King Herod took it upon himself to kind of ingratiate himself with the Jews said, hey, I'll, I'll refurbish your temple. And, and I'll, so it was kind of rebuilt and refurbished. And so it was known later as the Herodian temple. But that temple stood in Jerusalem until 70 AD when it was destroyed by Titus Vespasian and the Roman army. And so there's this tabernacle first given to Moses in, in 1450 BC, and later then the temple will be built and replace this temporary sanctuary. The reason I bring this up is because the writer of Hebrews now is going to be talking about this, this tabernacle. And he says here that there's one in heaven that is the true tabernacle. In fact, it's interesting, if you notice there in your Bibles, in verse 5, the writer says, they serve, uh, meaning earthly priests, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Your attention for a moment. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us, and for those of you who don't know this, this might be new information for some of you, that there is in heaven a tabernacle, that there is a sanctuary, that there is a throne of God. There is this tabernacle in heaven, and when God gave the, the specifications for designing and building the tabernacle to Moses, when he gave Moses the specifications in Exodus 25 through 27, it was an exact replica of what exists in heaven. The same specifications. Now, this is important because God is trying to communicate something about atonement and the whole process of how do you get to God. And, and so what they built in 1450 BC was after what exists in heaven presently. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about how these earthly priests would go into this earthly tabernacle and make atonement for the sins of the people. But we have a high priest who, when he ascended, went back into heaven and not through, with the blood of animals, but with his own blood made atonement for our sins in the tabernacle of heaven. So there's this beautiful thing that is portrayed to us here. There's this mirror image of something happening on earth that is also in heaven, but only to a greater degree in heaven. And so that's why then in verse 6, we read here that the ministry Jesus has received is as superior, and here's these superlative words again, superior to theirs, to the earthly priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior there's the word again, to the old one and is founded on better promises. Okay, there's always this language, this superlative language, good, better, superior, referring to Jesus. And now referring to the covenant that he's the mediator of. Okay, so most people know and understand, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. There's old covenant, there's new covenant. That's why your Bible is divided into Old Testament, New Testament. It's the same word, old covenant, new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. 
And as part of the the argument here, the writer of Hebrews is establishing as to why we can understand our salvation is secure in Jesus. He's the high priest. He's replaced this earthly system. He now is going to talk about old covenant versus new covenant and how Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, meaning the new covenant. So I want to just take a moment to quickly parallel and contrast old covenant and new covenant with just a few bullet points to distinguish why is new covenant better than the old covenant. So For you note-takers, here we go. Old covenant based on law and based on man's faithfulness. A a system of rules and regulations, and you're a part of the covenant if you are faithful to obey all the rules and regulations. But the new covenant is based on grace and God's faithfulness. The new covenant was not based on our performance. It was based on what God has done for us. It's based on God's faithfulness. Also, the old covenant was mediated by Moses, the new covenant mediated by Jesus. No, the law was introduced to Moses through Moses from God. And so Moses becomes the mediator between God and man related to the commandments. But under the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He's the one that stands in the gap. He's the one that paid the price. He's the one that died for our sins. Also, the old covenant involved the regular sacrifice of animals. The new covenant involved a one-time sacrifice of Jesus. This is why Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians refers to Jesus as our Passover lamb. This is why John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus approaching him to be baptized in, in water, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because Jesus would die as that lamb. He would be the perfect sacrifice who would replace all the other animal sacrifices once and for all. And one more bullet point, the old covenant atoned for sin temporarily, the new covenant atoned for sin eternally. See, under the old covenant, you had to keep going back with your animal sacrifice. And the high priest would have to keep offering a sacrifice once a year for the sins of the nation. So it was never a permanent thing. It was only a temporary thing, which is why they had to go back year after year after year. On the Jewish calendar, it's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The day year after year that the high priest, when the temple was still standing, uh, and before that the tabernacle, would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of an animal on behalf of his own sins first and then for the sins of the nation to make atonement. But he'd have to do it year after year after year. The writer of Hebrews is coming along saying, hey, guess what? You no longer have to drag your lamb to the temple because the perfect lamb died on a cross and paid the price for our sins. So let's keep reading here in Hebrews chapter 8. There's more on this, but let's keep reading. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, okay, the old covenant, no place would have been sought for another, the new covenant, the New Testament. But God found fault with the people and said... And now the writer of Hebrews is going to quote from the book of Jeremiah. He's going to quote Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, if I could just highlight with you that last section we read from verses 10 through 12, uh, how is it that the new covenant is better? So again, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing prophetically about this new covenant, this new testament, and uh, he, you know, he sees forward, and God gives him this revelation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying what Jeremiah saw uh, has been experienced, uh, and that is that Jesus came to fulfill this new covenant. And how is it that the new covenant is better? Well, one of the things that he says there, the first part of verse 10, is that obedience will come from inward devotion rather than outward obligation. This goes to a little bit about what we were talking about on Sunday. Uh, when you, you can control behavior only to a certain degree. And a lot of world religions try to attack the problem of evil behavior by a system of rules and regulations that will try to curtail or manage bad behavior. Christianity is different from all other world religions in that it doesn't try to modify behavior through an external process But what Christianity teaches is that it alters behavior through an internal transformation. And that when we are born again and come into a personal relationship with Jesus, there's an internal transformation that happens that manifests itself in external behavior. And so what Jeremiah was writing here and and the writer of Hebrews talks about is that when we have this encounter with the Lord... No longer does obedience come just strictly because we're following a bunch of rules, but obedience comes because I have an internal devotion, an inward devotion, rather than just these outward obligations, these external uh, rules and, and the laws. Now, listen, the law is still important in that it reveals the moral code of God. But the law is insufficient in saving us. And that's, that's the big change of mind that we need to understand, especially the Jews who came out of a very legalistic system. They thought that obeying the laws are what would end up making them righteous so that they could go to heaven. Well, the laws don't save anybody. The laws just point out, they're like a mirror, they reflect my sinfulness so that I would cry out for a Savior. And thus Jesus comes, dies on a cross, and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. So in other words, the way that we are made righteous is not by obeying the rules and regulations, but by faith in what Christ has done. He died for our sins. We put our faith and trust in Him. He paid the price for my sins. The wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath intended for me satisfied because of what Christ has done. So I put my faith and trust in Him. That's how I'm made righteous. You and I are not made righteous through obeying a system of rules, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience will come from inward devotion rather than outward obligation. He also says here in this section that relationship with God will now be personal instead of legal. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. In other words, this will become a personal heart issue rather than this legal, very mechanical kind of a relationship. And then one more thing in verse 12, sin will be completely forgiven instead of temporarily covered, forgotten instead of held against us. Open up, no, jump in and you'll 
The book of Hebrews challenges all believers of Jesus to continue to embrace Him as the only hope of salvation. Too often we can find ourselves trying to keep up our faith by adding traditions back in. No one is saved because of Jesus and something else. It's only Jesus. There's still nothing you or anyone else can do to ensure forgiveness of sin. Jesus took care of it once and for all. And through faith in that fact, you can begin to grow and flourish in God's plan for you, falling more in love with your Savior every day. We're honored you spent time with us here today studying the book of Hebrews on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to more editions of Pastor Gary Hamrick's teachings in Hebrews, you can do so by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or if you're someone frequently on the go, download our mobile app to take these messages along for the ride. What a great way to keep God's Word close at hand, no matter where this life takes you. We'd love to meet you too. So if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary will lead us in another study of the Bible, and we always include time for worship and fellowship. You'll find service times, directions, and all the additional information you need at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today for Cornerstone Connection. Call